podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. We're here for another week. And, uh, well, you wait three and a half months for an interview with Luca Brussel and two come along at once. This is, uh, this is Snooker's version of Blur versus Oasis. So we've got World Snooker Tour. I've been to Belgium. They've got an interview with Luca Brussel. It's on their YouTube channel and other, other platforms. And Stephen Hendry on his Q-Tips channel has also got an interview with Luca Brussel. So they've both been released at the same time. Um, I say Blur versus Oasis. It's more like Breakfast Time versus TV, TVAM. Now, this is uh, going back 40 years. Already half the audience have turned off, um, and the other half have wish they'd never turned on. Um, but uh, 1983, uh, the BBC for a while had been thinking about doing a breakfast television programme, and people there thought, well, you know, it's a bit a bit off having television in the morning. That's, uh, you know, that's what sort of low-grade people want to watch. And so they ummed and ahed, and... And, and didn't launch a service. And then it was announced ITV were going to have one, TVAM. And straight away the BBC stormed in and said, yeah, actually we will have a programme and we'll get it on air before them. And TVAM, it's quite well documented, had a lot of problems getting on air. Breakfast time launched first. So they were able to uh, establish the format and get a, a steal on the ratings. Now you might say, why are you talking about this for? Well, it was quite, I thought it was quite, um, disingenuous of World Snooker Tour to claim that they had the first interview with Brussel because Hendry actually did his a month ago. Um, they were there on Friday, but they managed to edit it very quickly. And listen, it doesn't matter. They're both actually really good. Hendry is always good. You can always see, and you see it with Luca, uh, but with the players when Stephen does his stuff, the respect and indeed in some cases all they have for him because they're all aware of what he's achieved in the game, the way he dominated. And Luca is a little bit young to remember him in his prime, but he'll have watched because he's a student of the game. He'll have watched a lot of the footage and will be very aware of Hendry. And I think also... Because Stephen is quite brutal and quite direct in, in what he says in commentary, they kind of want his approval, I think, the players. They look up to him. They want him to say nice things about them because he doesn't say nice things necessarily about everybody. Uh, the World Snooker Tour video, uh, Polly James was the presenter. I thought she was actually uh, a breath of fresh air for it. Someone different. She's a radio presenter, does uh, darts uh, interviews as well. And uh, she went over to Belgium. So, anyway, it's been nice to hear from Luca. And later in this edition of the podcast... Uh, I will be sort of looking ahead to the season for him. Of course, he plays, as all the players will be, uh, those that have uh, made it to Nuremberg at the European Masters this week. And he'll be up on Tuesday afternoon against Jackson Page. And I'll be looking at how other first-time world champions have fared in their in their season as champion. Uh, I mentioned TVAM there. Michael Parkinson, of course, was one of the, uh, the, the five famous broadcasters who launched it. He uh, A colossus, a giant of British broadcasting, sadly passed away just last week. Um, but when TVM started to go belly up in the early days and, and those famous faces left, who came in? Nick Owen. Now, Nick Owen went on to present Snooker for ITV and then in a later iteration, Eamon Holmes was the main man and he was uh, he presented Snooker on the BBC. So there's some sort of link. I think we'll leave breakfast television alone for now. Um, good news in the last week is that the World Open uh, is back on the schedule. It'll be a new Shan in China. So that's four events now back in China because we haven't had any since pre-pandemic in 2019. So the only one really that's missing now is the, I guess, the China Open itself in Beijing. Hopefully next season that will return. But it's good news. Um, the calendar, you know, it's been a bit threadbare and, and you can understand players not happy about that, not least because the Chinese events are worth a lot of money. But now it's building up nicely again and that's going to be uh, next March, just before the Tour Championship. So it's going to be quite busy in the second half of the season. Um, We've got, of course, the Shanghai Masters and Invitation event, the the Wuhan Open, that's a new tournament, the International Championship, and then that World Open as well. I saw some comments 
because inevitably good news is never good news. There's always something to, to criticise. I saw some comments complaining on and of tournaments in mainland Europe. Well, the fact is, tournaments have to be financially sustainable. And, you know, to put a tournament on is no mean feat. A ranking tournament, that is. You have to hire the venue. You have to pay all the staff. You have to cover the prize fund. So you're already looking at close to a million pounds before you've even sold one ticket. So it's a massive financial risk and outlay. And although snooker is very popular on television in mainland Europe, the fact is the, the tournaments tend to make a loss or only just break even. They don't make a lot of money. So they're a big risk. You know, it's not just a question of pointing at a map and saying, we'll go there. We'll take a load of tables there next week. Um, but China, of course, they have the infrastructure. They have the backing uh, of the Chinese uh, promoters, the Chinese Billing and Snooker Association. And there were people saying, you know, after the match-fixing scandal, there were people in the game saying, we won't be back in China on the same level as before because of this. But actually, that's not the case, which is encouraging. They're still supporting snooker. Of course, they've got some new stars, which helps. But it's good that they're still supporting the game. And it can only be good news that we're going back there. It's another tournament. And, you know, that is that is, can only be for the good. Now, speaking of Nuremberg, European Masters this week, uh, live on Eurosport and Discovery Plus. And it, the the, the um, schedules are different in every country. But uh, if you have Discovery Plus, they will have all the sessions live. So that's the place to be, really. Um, I mentioned last year we were talking about ideas for improving things and I said it would be good if World Snooker Tour on their website when they promote events could actually talk about the place and sell it as a kind of experience rather than just a tournament and that is what they've done with this. They put a very nice piece up this week or last week about Nuremberg detailing the sort of historic sites to visit and where else you can go if you're there but the line that caught my eye was about the local food. How about this for a sentence? It says, no trip to Nuremberg is complete without a taste of the local sausages, which have been renowned since the 14th century. A favourite snack is dry M. Wegler, three in a roll, which is three sliced bratwurst in a roll with mustard. Now, I, I, Neil Robertson and his vegan chums will be aghast at this, I know, but I, I'm all for um, advertising tournaments based on their sausages. And in fact, uh, this episode is going to be called Sausages. And if you're in Nuremberg, do sample that and let me know um, if the reputation of these sausages... Is, uh, is justified, because uh, we want to hear about that. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, that's the preamble, we will uh, get into the emails. And uh, as I say, later on, we'll be talking about Luca Purcell. And also, there's a new feature. <laughs> How long it'll last, I don't know. But there's a new feature coming at about the halfway point, as a sort of palate cleanser, uh, before we get into the second half. So look out for that. Um <laughs> Paul in Edinburgh has written, he said, Hey Dave, long-time listener, first-time writer. So I have alerts set up on my phone for whenever a match involving any of my favourite players is about to start. My phone pinged today, so this was last Monday, I think, last Monday, when the British Open qualifiers began. He said, my phone pinged today telling me that Stephen Hendry was about to start a match against Mohamed Asif, a match I had no idea was happening. Turns out it was the qualifiers for the British Open. However, when I went to try and find a stream of it somewhere, I discovered there was nothing. I find it incredible that a match involving one of the sport's greatest players, a player who doesn't bother playing all that much these days, is not available to watch anywhere. And there are no fans at the qualifiers either, from what I can understand. Is there a good reason why these matches aren't available to watch? I can kind of understand why Eurosport might not bother itself with such games. It's a big investment just to broadcast the occasional high-profile match that might come up in the qualifiers. But you'd think World Snooker Tour or someone would make these matches available to watch somewhere, perhaps on YouTube or on the WST website itself. They want to keep people interested. I think the powers that be could do a better job of making the sport accessible. 
Well, Paul, thanks for email. This was an old-fashioned cock-up, basically. <laughs> and it's a strange thing, I think, about World Snooker Tour. I think they do the difficult things well. Getting tournaments on is the most difficult. And, you know, they're, they're building the circuit up nicely again. But they also seem to do the easy things badly. And when the qualifiers began last Monday, it turned out... They'd advertised it all as being on Discovery+. Plus. Discovery+, Plus have the rights to the world ranking event qualifiers. However, not this tournament, because the British Open, they're not the rights holders. Um... In the UK, outside the UK, you could watch it on Discovery Plus. Inside the UK, you couldn't. But this only became apparent as the tournament began, and there were a lot of people, quite understandably, who'd settled down to watch it in the UK, wondering where it was. It wasn't on Matchroom Live. It basically wasn't anywhere. Um, there was absolute radio silence from World Snooker for about six hours, and then eventually they put a, a, a statement up to say they they were making it available for free on Facebook, on their Facebook page, which was a really good solution. I know not everyone's on Facebook, but it was a solution. And it was on there for the rest of the week, which is good uh, that it was available to watch. But it was very odd um, that no one seemed to realise who the rights holders were. So that's why you couldn't watch the Stephen Envy match, uh, Paul, because there was yeah, there was a, no other way of putting it. There was a cock-up. Um, I have to say about the qualifiers, I mean, again, they were stretched out for six days. There was no reason to. Um, played on two tables. I mean, if they'd have, obviously, if they'd have played it on four tables, they could have played it in three days, get it done. I've made, I've made this point before, and I'm going to make it again. If you're going to drag it out for that amount of time, do do something with it. Make it, use it to your advantage. Make make it more of a production. Have commentary, have interviews, have competitions. We did trial this uh, the UK Championship last year, and it went really well. We had massive um, feedback. I actually met, I met a guy in Hull who'd come over from Canada who'd heard me commentating on the UK qualifiers. Free, it was free on the World Snooker YouTube and Facebook uh, pages. And he'd heard me talking about the Tour Championship and he bought a ticket to come over because he, he thought it sounded like a really good tournament. So, you know, that that sort of... It, the qualifiers could be used, I think, as sort of almost like a weapon to promote the other events, try and flog tickets, get, get people engaged, get them interested. Instead, we just had six days of, yeah, I mean, some of the matches I'm sure were really good, but it kind of was all a bit anonymous. Um, but the more tournaments we have, I guess they're going to have to have shorter qualifiers just to fit everything in. Um, now then... What we did have last week was the Women's US Open in Seattle. We've had a couple of emails from people on the ground. Dave Daly, he, uh, of course, runs the, the club, the Ox Billiards Club. He said, I thought I'd share a brief update on things here, as we've had an amazing two weeks at the Ox Billiards on our continued journey to promote the sport in North America. First, Luca Brussel came and spent a few days with us. He got We got to have dinner with him on the Saturday night and then on Sunday night held an exhibition to a sold-out show. Luca started off in flying form with two back-to-back centuries in the first two frames. It was a pleasure to have the world champion come this far across the globe to spend time with us. Then last week, Ox hosted the Women's uh, World US Open tournament for its second year running. Uh, on year and Mink were in the final. Mink secured a fabulous 4-2 win, having been 2-0 down. I had the pleasure of refereeing the final between the two ladies while my good friend David Burney was in the commentary box, which, as you mentioned, was streamed as available in the Ox- on the Oxbillies channel. I also refereed the exhibition with Luca, other than when I, I played a frame with him myself. It's been an absolute joy to see so many professionals come over to the US. In the short time that Ox has been in existence, I've had the pleasure of refereeing six in total. Judd Trump, Ricky Walden, Luca Purcell, Rebecca Kenner, Nung Nong Yi and Mick Nunchuk and played four of them in frames of snooker. I'm hopeful we'll continue to grow the sport in North America and hoping to see more tournaments, either invitational or open here in the US in the coming years. Thank you for all your support and shout-outs, both in your podcast 
when doing TV commentary. It's been very helpful to us and is much appreciated. Well, thank you, Dave. And uh, it's good information about Luca Purcell coming back, having not played really any snooker and making back-to-back centuries in the first two frames that exhibition. Although since, I think his cue went missing um, on the way back. He's been doing so much travelling, but not with the cue. But he took it, obviously, on that trip, and it seems to have gone. That's the cue he, played, he won the World Championship with, which is not great news as the new season starts. Now, David Burney, he was doing the commentary. I mentioned how well-dressed he was last week. He said, thank you for your kind comments on my attire during the US Open. I'm glad we entertain you, and hopefully many others. We're all doing our part in North America to create a wonderful snooker community. Quick question. This is, a, this is quite a random one, it's got to be said. Do you know of any player who's made a maximum 194 in Snooker Plus? Now, Snooker Plus was a, a short-lived experiment where they had an orange and a purple ball, um, so you could obviously make uh, more than 147. I don't know anyone who made a maximum in that. I'm not a Snooker Plus expert, but anyone out there who knows, uh, do let us know. He said, thanks for those nice words on my wardrobe during the US Open. I'll bring you yet another gift to Sheffield this year. Well, that's, got, that's nice of you, but uh, it might be my t- turn to buy, to buy something, uh, David. But uh, I think from what we've heard there from those two emails is uh, that there is a lot of interest in North America. And it's good that there are people like Dave and David who are doing their best and there's a community of people there. I met Alan Morris from the, uh, the US um, Association as well in Leicester because he's over with um, the player they've got on the tour this year. And um, it's good to see... You know, people who are passionate, enthusiastic, trying to push the game forward. Snooker, he's, I think he's growing in popularity. Obviously, it, it may have a long way to go to sort of really reach the heights, but it can only happen with the support of people like this. And also, the players who go over there, they've all said nice things about the Oxbillies Club there in Seattle. So, uh, more power to your respective elbows. Now, last week, I discussed um, the question that Barry Hearn asked me about how he said we could get prize money up to 20 million. How do we get up to 40 million? And I talked about what that might mean for the World Championship. The Crucibles days could be number potentially. Saudi Arabia coming into the picture. It's a time potentially of change. Um, and, you know, it, it, it created quite a lot of chat. And we had a few emails about it. Uh, James Ellison. What a great listen the latest podcast was, as they always are. I imagine you've been inundated on this topic. Not quite, James, but anyway... We've, we, uh, we've had a few. He said, I don't know if it's the 25 years going to the Crucible, or the near 40 years since I first started watching the sport, but I felt compelled to give my 10 pence as follows. I see the Saudis wanting to buy into the Premier League's success and be associated with the 50,000 Geordies who'd be at every match, whoever owned their club. But I don't see the Saudis wanting to build a new St James's Park in Riyadh. I see the Saudis wanting a big presence in golf and trying to set up a rival tour. But I don't see the Royal and Ancient selling the, the old course in St Andrews so that an exact replica can be built in Jeddah. My point being that this whole debate about the Crucible may well be about sport expansion, but it shouldn't, in, but it shouldn't be, in my view. I haven't heard many snooker fans of any nationality complain about having more tournaments in Europe or in China. It's fantastic news for snooker growth and revenues if the Saudis want a piece of the snooker scene. Pardon the pun. Let there be permanent events in Saudi Arabia, have a Saudi tour even, that coexists and jams pack the calendar together with the main tour, but don't sell the showpiece event and its setting. Of course, and this is my whole point, and arguably one of the root causes of the problem, isn't it? That this is one of the only sports, certainly in the UK, where the governing body of that sport doesn't own the venue of its Blue Ribbon event. In terms of Barry Hearn, I personally find it difficult not to like Barry's enthusiasm for a sport that's undoubtedly dear to his heart. As you said yourself, when he bought Matchroom's headquarters in 1982, he was making good money, while his mate was king of the crucible. But it does feel a little audacious to be asking what Sheffield Council can do for snooker. 
I mean, I don't recall the Football Association asking London Borough Council to foot the bill for a new Wembley. Why? Because they already own Wembley. And I very much doubt that we'll see the day when the Wimbledon or FA Cup final, the Grand National, the Open Golf Championship and countless other events are advertised as such but staged in Saudi Arabia because the locations for these great events, these hallowed turfs, are owned by the irrelevant sporting bodies. If Matchroom Sport, who I understand own 51% of World Snooker Limited, had bought the Crucible Theatre from Sheffield Council back in 1982, it may well be a case of the Saudis being happy to flood money and advertising into building an extension to what's been the sports backdrop for all those Davis, Hendry, O'Sullivan and Selby wins and everyone in between since 1977. My feeling is that you can play the World Championship for a billion pound prize money in a one million pound in a one million capacity stadium anywhere in the world, but you won't have trodden the paths of legends and known you could cut it in the acoustical acid test that is the crucible. I agree with you, Mr. Hendon. The train may well have left the station. The problem I feel is that the station was never owned by anyone in the first place. Thank you, uh, James. Good use of acoustical acid test there, and uh, I think we we must be careful in in. <laughs> People assume, and I understand why, that if a venue's packed, then the promoters must be making a fortune. That's not always the case. The, the German Masters doesn't make a lot of money. The temperature home is expensive to hire. People raved about the Hong Kong event last year. Well, why isn't it on this year, then? If it, if it was such a big success, why isn't it on this year? Big venues uh, bring about big costs. And as I said earlier, to, st- to start up an event from scratch, you need you know best part of a million quid. Um, it's not always necessarily a money spinner but anyway we'll move on Benjamin Gillies first off I'd like to thank you for your fantastic podcast he stands out from the other snooker podcasts comfortable uh, a comfortable uh, I deleted something here it stands out from the other snooker podcasts a comfortable source of self-deprecation what's not to love I forget the feeling of uh, in fact you know, people will be saying well you know you have all week to prepare for this why can't you uh, why can't you actually edit the emails properly but I'm going to look up your original email to see what you actually said here because there may be some praise oh here we are (laughs) you say uh, it stands out from other snooker podcasts not just because of its notoriously low production value but mainly because of your expert level of insight on the general mechanics of snooker whether it's to do with broadcasting governing website apps or communication in general you don't shy away from addressing existing issues in the sport but generally in a fair and balanced way all marinated in a comfortable source of self-deprecation. What's not to love, long may it continue. Well, that's very kind of you, uh, Benjamin. Uh, good use of the word marinated there. Uh, anyway, I, I, don't know, I don't know how that uh, edited, but anyway, we'll, we'll continue. Hopefully I've got the rest of your email here. It says, your analysis got me thinking about what draws people to snooker. Unlike most other sports, snooker players' careers tend to last multiple decades. Therefore, top names are engraved... Oh, see, I've, yeah, this is a shambles. I, I was talking earlier on about uh, TVAM. They, they, to them, this would be BAFTA winning. I've started reading it in the in the wrong place. Uh, I'll go back. This is Benjamin again. Stay, stick with this; it's worth it. So in your latest episode, you covered the future of the Crucible in Sheffield and the growing reality that it's looking to become part of Snooker's rich folklore. Having made the pilgrimage myself once before, I agree it stands out as one of the best locations one could ever dream up for Snooker's biggest stage, and found it unthinkable it would ever move. But your analysis got me thinking about what draws people to snooker. Unlike most other sports, snooker players' careers tend to last multiple decades. Therefore, top names are engraved in our minds because we've seen them during different phases of our lives. They're fixtures that grow up alongside us and people tend to have affections towards them because of 
positive or negative, because of it, positive or negative. To list a few examples, Steve Davis, 33 years a pro. Jimmy White, 43 years and counting. Ken Doherty, 33 years and counting. The class of 92, 31 years and counting. Stephen Henry, 27 years, which was considered short. And although the Crucible is a significant part of that history, moving the World Championship will not deter people from following the game, whether they're fanatics or not. Over the last few seasons, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been voiced that prize money overall, not talking about top 16, is insufficient to sustain a tour of 128 players. With Barry Hearn's ethos of promoting by rewarding winners still being followed, it's evident the only way to do that is to increase the overall prize money going into the sport. Snooker is simply not in a position to be choosy and would have to jump at any opportunity to achieve just that. Unfortunately, a couple of thousand tickets of extra sales wouldn't be enough, frankly. With that in mind, I don't think even a new venue with increased capacity in the centre of Sheffield could stave off the inevitable. That realisation made me sad, but I asked myself, if the World Championship would not be in Sheffield anymore, would I still watch it? Would it still have tension? Would it retain its prestige? The answer is, of course, yes. If you're a snooker nut such as myself, you would watch it even if it was played in a drafty corner of the local Asda, with inferior lighting and constant noises. But I believe the general audience would tune in equally, if not more. We have to stop thinking that the general audience equates to white middle-aged British men. There's a massive following dwarfing the previously mentioned demographic who have never experienced the Crucible, but love the game nonetheless. And most of those, frankly, don't really care if it's in Sheffield. Some of those would probably welcome the idea of it being potentially nearer to, they, to where they are in the world. And lastly, the players themselves, most of whom say they can't think of it ever moving anywhere else. I'd like to ask any potential debutant, if they were to qualify, would they rather play in Sheffield with earnings as is, or play somewhere else and earn triple the prize money? It doesn't take a crystal ball to know what the majority of the answers would be. I have a feeling I'm rambling here, so I'll end it. Uh, he says that, but then he continues. He says, I still have... So I'm just on that, actually. I mean, I, I completely valid points. I, what I would say, though, is obviously, I, I, I imagine, uh, Benjamin, you're living in the UK... Um, say it moved to China, for, for argument's sake. You say you you watch as much of it, but to watch the first session, you'd have to get up obviously, you know, three in the morning. Now there'll be people in China who'll be saying, "Hang on, you know, we, we <laughs> at the moment, you know, our, our, your evening session is the middle of the night here, so it, it, it's the other way for them." But what I'm saying is, if it was uprooted, it would be different. And I think also it's worth saying, if it was put somewhere else, I could easily see the format changing. I could see it being cut. I could see it being fewer days, shorter matches, easily. At the moment, it's a bit like if you, see, if you envisage a massive brick wall, OK, and you think, well, we don't need that brick bottom right, well, let's take it out. It could potentially cause a bit of damage. It could collapse the whole thing. Not, not the best analogy, but you know what I mean. Anyway, Benjamin continues. He says, I have some other things to respond to. I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. Number one, improvements attending live snooker. Why not design a specific visitor app on your phone? for which you pay, let's, you pay, let's say, £10. This lets you toggle between the camera views available, the overhead table view, TV view, or any specific camera in place by the broadcaster. Include perhaps the option to include commentary via people's own earbuds. No need to produce or sell additional hardware, which expire. You could also design the app in such a way it disables any other sounds on your phone, equally avoiding people's phones going off and disturbing play. You wouldn't have to have monitors in the audience either, which are usually either far away or in an awkward angle, depending on what seats you have. I believe this would greatly enhance the experience for all attendees and especially appeal to younger audiences, which we absolutely need to attract and retain. What I'd say about that, Benjamin, is it's a good idea, but at the moment they need to get some of the more basic things right. I mean, the live scoring did basically hold up, I think, the, the temporary live scoring for the European Masters. It was improved. Um, they had breaks and, and it was better. But there are various things that, I mean, what you described there is fine, but that, that would take a lot of investment and a lot of work 
I think there, there are simpler things they need to sort of clarify first. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do this one. We're going to talk about this later. But what, what will Luca Purcell do next season? He says, I'm a Belgian living in Milton Keynes. So I'm biased, of course, and would really like to see him reach the world number one spot as he's so agonisingly close to Ronnie O'Sullivan. But if I'm really honest, I don't think Luca will kick on from here. I still believe he's an unbelievable talent but isn't as reliable as some of the other big guns, such as Robertson, Selby, Trump, etc. He'll keep Nick in the old tournament, and we'll get a purple patch here and there, but not a serial winner. I'll go even further as to say he'll not reach a final in the coming season. Yet I truly hope he proves me wrong. Well, we will see. Uh, number three player to watch out for. I can't believe how Nopin Sangam hasn't yet broken his duck. In my opinion, he's right up there with Jack Lazowski as the best player never to win a ranking event, although I wouldn't mind if Lazowski finally brought it home this season. And finally, and this this is an extraordinary uh, way to sign off, mundane encounters with snooker players. I've had a few of these over the months, but this is uh, possibly the best of them all. He said, after a session at the shootout in Watford a couple of years ago, I found myself in a sandwich shop next to Tor Chian Leong. Now, he's the Malaysian uh, professional, of course. He says he was trying to explain something to the lady behind the counter about the sandwich he was ordering, but couldn't seem to get his message across. He ultimately just gave up and took the sandwich as was. After picking up my own sandwich a couple of minutes later, I found him outside, carefully dissecting his sandwich and removing the offended ingredients, mainly tomatoes, in the nearest bin, while mumbling something in Malaysian, which is better left untranslated. <laughs> what a vignette that is. What a, what a picture you're painting there. Um, oh, we'll, know, we'll know if you, if you buy... Uh, they call him Rory Thor, don't they? Thor Chan Leong. Uh, if you buy him a sandwich, make sure there's no tomatoes. I wonder what he thinks of the sausages in uh, Nuremberg. Maybe he can... Uh, I don't think he's in that event, is he? But anyway. Uh, Benjamin signs off. I appreciate this was probably a long email, but hopefully some bits were at least mildly entertaining or useful. Keep up the great podcast. Thanks for all you continue to do for the sport. Well, it was all interesting, is the truth. That's why I read it out, even though I read it out badly. <laughs> and <clears throat> finally, on the Crucible in the World Championship, Tommy O'Prey... He says, I just wanted to comment on this week's podcast and the talk of the World Championships potentially leaving the Crucible. I think for most of us who watch the tournament on TV, it won't actually matter that much. I actually get the history of the venue, how it came about, and the wonderful memories we've all shared watching the greats of the game play there. But for most of us who've never been, it's the game itself we love. I'm now 41, and like many, have watched the snooker since I was very young. I watched with my gran, who's no longer with us, and have wonderful memories watching Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, and Jimmy White, etc. But the actual venue itself never really occurred to me. I've been fortunate enough to attend a handful of live events and enjoyed each experience immensely, but one day for overthinking the importance of this venue. Now, I appreciate I might be in the minority of hardcore fans who feel this way, but I honestly believe that the average snooker fan won't be that bothered where the matches are played. Surely the survival and progression of our wonderful sport is what matters most. Just my thoughts. We'd love to hear your own. Thanks again for your excellent work with the podcast. Well, thank you, Tommy. <clears throat> I think, to be honest with you, we, we would only know if it happened, wouldn't we? You know, <clears throat> And a lot of it would depend on where it went. I think it, it is... It seems very unlikely that this venue is going to be built in Sheffield. So the, the, the logical conclusion is it's not going to be in Sheffield. Now, as I've said before, if they could find a truly iconic venue like the Royal Albert Hall and put it there, that would be impressive. And I think that would people would sort of think, well, this is, this is good. But if they just find some sort of cavernous place... I mean, I could even see it going to Alexandra Palace and the Masters moving somewhere else. You know, that, that could happen. Then I'm not sure that's really going to be as good. But as I say, we'll, we would only know that if it actually happened. And we may find out in a few years. Um, but thank you for your, your points there. <clears throat> Alpha Bonzi, just a comment on the excellent Stephen Hendry, Barry Hearn, Q-Tips interview. Is it a concern that Eddie Hearn, having never had an emotional attachment to snooker, 
won't be worried about what the crucible means to snooker past 2027. Have Sheffield City Council shown any desire to build a new crucible that Will Snooker is demanding? And he says, P.S. Uh, on the All In Wrestling show happening at Wembley Stadium next Sunday, your friend Phil Hague is also going. Fat guys in underpants wrestling each other. What's not to like? Please don't cancel me for the fat guys remark. I'm a fat guy myself. Well, <laughs> when you say fat guys wrestling each other, you don't mean you and Phil, don't you? You mean the, you mean the wrestlers. I get it now, yes, the wrestlers. Uh, well, we don't judge, you know, have, have a good time. It sounds, uh, sounds like an experience. Um, so that's, uh, that's the first of the show. Now we'll be coming up, uh, coming up later on. We'll be thinking about, uh, Luca Brussel and how he might fare this season. But the midpoint of the podcast, it's a new feature that I'm, <laughs> that I may live to regret. Okay. And I thought, you know, it can be a bit serious, it can be a bit heavy at times, the discussions. So we need to lighten the mood. And I thought, what would be better than a few snooker jokes? And these are jokes I've written myself. <laughs> it's three of them. The first one, <laughs> just reading them here. I think this is a mistake already, to be honest. I think this is a, this will never happen again, never be spoken of again. But anyway, joke number one, okay? Joke number one, who is the cat's favourite snooker player? Who is the cat's favourite snooker player? Tony Meow. I did say, yeah, I did say it was a bad idea. Number two, we'll, we'll plough on. Number two, when Desmond Llewellyn died. Now, to understand that this joke, you have to understand who Desmond Llewellyn was. So maybe Google him if you don't know. But when Desmond Llewellyn died, why did James Bond stop playing snooker? He'd lost his cue. He'd lost his cue. Isn't that good, is it, really? Anyway, number three, we'll, we'll, we'll end. I was going to say we'll end on a high, but it's actually a low. This is the worst of the three. Number three, which snooker player has a sideline selling winged insects that sting? I'll read that again. Which snooker player has a sideline selling winged inse- insects that sting? Mark Selby. Mark Selby. We'll now have a minute's silence and then we'll return with the rest of the podcast. Well, to more serious matters, um, the second ranking event of the season is getting underway this week in Nuremberg, the European Masters, and it's the first we will see of Luca Purcell since the World Championship, which uh, May the 1st was the, the last day of the final. Last player to beat him on tour, Hayden Pinay at the WST Classic back in March, so uh, it's been a while since he lost. Quite rightly, he's been enjoying himself and the, the various interviews I mentioned at the start go through all of that, um, but how will he fare as world champion? The, the difference is for him, and because every world champion is different. Some are used to winning the serial winners already. Some come out the blue. The thing for him is he's going to have to get used to being on the main table all the time. Now, I personally think he'll like that. I think Luca likes to be centre stage, but his matches are going to have a lot more scrutiny. You know, they're going to be his results are going to be picked over, his performances are going to be picked over. There'll be a lot of people with opinions within the game on social media about what he's doing, what he's doing right, what he's doing wrong, what he should be doing. Um, and that will start pretty quickly. You know, if he loses to Jackson Page on Tuesday, I'm sure it will start then. Um, but every world champion is different. And, and in terms of sort of demands on his time and how he copes with the, you know, demands for media interviews, personal appearances. Someone like Dennis Taylor, who won in 1985, he seemed to enjoy that. He seemed to naturally enjoy it. Joe Johnson, who won in 1986, was, you know, quite a private man, family man before he won it. And I think he enjoyed it to an extent, but then it did start to intrude on his personal time to the extent that he didn't have any. Now, I've written an article, my Eurosport column on the website, Eurosport website, is returning on Monday, 
which is when this podcast will be released. So look out for that. I've written my thoughts on this. And what I've done is I've gone through... If we start with Stephen Hendry in 1990, I've gone through the first-time world champions and how many ranking events they've won in the following season. This is not an exact science because the number of tournaments available to play in has, has fluctuated wildly over the years. Um, some years there's been not very many, others there's been plenty. So it's not an exact science. I should say, though, I'm, I'm only looking at ranking events purely because invitation events, again, fluctuate wildly between how they're, how they're, comp- uh, how they're uh, comprised. You can have a, a, an invitation event with four players in it, or one with 16. They're, they're all very different. Whereas ranking events are all, in theory, the same. They're all 128 players, and you know they're structured very similarly. Having said that, a couple, of course, now are actually limited field. But anyway, <laughs> let's press on with those caveats. So which world champion fared the best in terms of ranking events won the following season? The answer is Judd Trump. In 2019-2020, won six ranking tournaments. Now, there were a lot to play in, but even so, that's an incredible uh, run. I think with Trump, he was ready when he won the World Championship to actually assume that mantle as the top dog. I think he liked the idea that that was him, and he wanted to prove that he was, and he won all those tournaments and, uh, of course, carried on through the pandemic, winning plenty more. So he won six. Stephen Hendry won five in 1990-91. This was an extraordinary a run that he was on. He won the first four of the next season. In fact, there were eight ranking events. Hendry was in six finals and he won five of them. Now, that's an imp- incredible um, achievement. He was still disappointed, though, of course, not to retain the World Championship. Steve Jones beat him uh, at the Crucible. The following players all won two each in their first year as World Champion. John Parrott, John Higgins and Mark Selby. Two is a good return in any era, really. If you're winning multiple ranking events, that's that's OK. That's good. The following players all won one. Mark Williams, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Graham Dot, and Neil Robertson. So you look at Williams and O'Sullivan, I mean, they're obviously in particular there. Well, and Robertson, actually, multi-champions. But in terms of ranking events as world champion the first time, just one each. And then we had four players, and remember this is from 1990, four players who didn't win any. Ken Doherty, Peter Ebden, Sean Murphy, and Stuart Bingham uh, didn't win a ranking event in the year as world champion. Now, this... As I say, it's an inexact science. Eras change, standards change. But certain players, I think, did struggle. In the case of Peter Ebden, he's interesting. He was definitely someone who threw himself into being world champion. He did everything that was asked of him. A lot of personal appearances. And obviously that takes time out of practising. It takes time out of preparing for matches. Certainly for someone like him, who always was very sort of into preparation. It did have an effect on his personal time. But he made the decision, I'm world champion, this is what I should be doing. And that's to his credit. I think uh, Sean Murphy was a bit similar, although Murphy didn't have that many tournaments, it must be said, when he was champion. I think it was only six ranking events. Um, but he had to get used to, and this is what Luca Purcell will have as well, as I said, he had to get used to, OK, suddenly you're on the telly. You're not actually on table two. You're on the telly. Your match is centre stage. Let's, let's see uh, how you get on. And let's see if you do make a bad start to the season, whether you can recover are you aware of that big target that's been painted on your back? Some players seem to relish it. Hendry was one. I mentioned Trump. Some players, maybe it does affect them. Um, Brussel, I mean, in these interviews that he's done, it comes across, he's a happy-go-lucky sort of character. And certainly, you couldn't be accused of succumbing to pressure at the World Championship. He uh, was the exact opposite. Of course, he never won a match at the Crucible in five appearances. And he went out of his way to take the pressure off by almost telling himself none of it mattered. So instead of practising, he was partying. He actually said in these interviews, he's not really that much of a partier, but he was doing it 
to distract himself from the pressure of the World Championship rather than going to bed early and, and fretting and not being able to get to sleep because you're worrying about the matches. Worth saying, he could have lost round one. He lost. He, he beat Ricky Walden 10-9. I mean, he didn't lose, but he, you know, he could have been out again. And then, of course, he beat Mark Williams in a close match. Ronnie O'Sullivan, he recovered against. C.J. Wee, he recovered against. And then some in the final held off Mark Selby. But he played this fearless brand of snooker. And if he can play that for the rest of the season, or certainly enough during the season, then he could certainly get more success. The, the, the thing is, he, I mean, it's, it's different because Mark Williams, he'd won his third world title. But 2018, he went into the new season, in his own words, on a free roll. He was free rolling because he'd done what he wanted to do. And the rest was just a bonus. And like Luca Brussel, he enjoyed himself throughout the summer and continued to enjoy success. And Brussel, if he can go in with that mindset that basically everything in now is a bonus, that will take pressure off and it'll make him dangerous. I think the first match he's got against Jackson Page is not the worst draw in, in as much as I think we know what sort of match it'll be because Page is a very attacking player as well. So it'll be an open match. Maybe that's what he needs. Chances. He'll get chances to score. He won't have to sort of... Uh, you know, force his way in through safety. It, it'll be the sort of snooker that he enjoys playing. Doesn't mean he'll win, but but maybe it's not the worst sort of match to start with in terms of the style of match. But then, you know, there'll be, put it this way, there'll be more time spent doing interviews. He'll be expected to front up, and I'm sure he will. But it's something he's got to get used to. It's not just about the snooker, it's about the rest of it. There's, there's a hoopla that goes on when you're world champion. Um so let's see what the listeners think about Luca Brussel's chances. Phil Spivy, love the podcast. Hope you never stop doing it. Phil's writing before that joke section. He may think differently now. Uh, he said in your last episode, you asked listeners how they thought Luca Brussel would cope this season as world champion. So I decided to offer my opinions. I don't think Luca will be overawed by the label of world champion as he is a naturally relaxed and confident person. That said, he's always been a streaky player. So I don't expect he will suddenly become a player who wins three or four tournaments a season. My feeling is that he will continue in much the same vein as before, where he'll always be a contender for titles, and every now and again, when he hits top form and is in the mood, will win events. I can certainly see him winning something this season. My hope is that he does hit form more often, as there aren't many players better to watch than Luca when he's in that kind of mood. He does add an addendum... What's the word? Addendum? Yes, here, Phil. He says, uh, it's been great in recent years to see certain trophies named in honour of people who contributed to snooker. I'd like, I have some ideas for a few more. The UK Championship, the Mike Watterson Trophy, as he established the tournament and did so much for snooker. Uh, the World Championship, the Joe Davies Trophy, no explanation needed there. Tour Championship, the Barry Hearn Trophy, surely Barry deserves something named after him, and what tournament better exemplifies his contribution than an elite event for the very best? European Masters, the Rolf Kaub Trophy. I was going to, about to suggest the German Masters until I remembered that's named after Brandon Parker. Rolf Kaub has done a lot to popularise snooker in Europe, so it seems appropriate, especially as the... European Masters has been in Germany in recent years. Uh, well, thank you, uh, thank you for your thoughts on that, uh, Phil. In terms of the trophies, I mean, I've got no. I mean, Joe Davis, that's that's a no-brainer. In fact, I remember literally 2001. It was the centenary of his birth, and I suggested that back then. We're going back over 20 years, and they didn't do it. But I mean, you know, he bought the trophy, didn't he? The first one, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I quite like the naming of trophies. Of course, we've got the Climb Everton Trophy, the, the British Open, um, the Paul Hunter Trophy, of course, at the Masters. Um, I, I, the problem, I guess, is the more you do, then people will say, well, what about so-and-so? I mean, John Spencer would be a player who's passed away. Um, they have the, uh, the, the Home Nations Trophies named after various people. It's a nice idea, and, uh, yeah, I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that, uh, that, that, uh, that could well happen. 
Uh, I think that's the only email we had about Luca. We had that one earlier when people were giving their views. But uh, the bottom line is we don't know. And I think that it's very exciting. If the only problem he's got is that he's under more pressure because he's world champion, that's not a bad problem to have. I think so much of it is how he copes with it. And we've seen how he copes with pressure. We saw it at the Crucible. He, he finds a way to deal with it. Well, he did there anyway. This thing about not practising, though, I don't see that being sustainable. Um, he claimed he didn't do any practice before the World Championship. But, of course, in truth, he's been practising all his life. He's been playing a lot of snooker, a lot of snooker over the years. Um, I think the thing with practice, and players would know better, but it's not necessarily the amount of time. I mean, is four hours necessarily better than three hours? It depends what you're doing in that time. The quality of the practice, what you're working on, what you're looking at, what you're fine-tuning... Um, I suspect he'll be. I suspect he'll be back to to practicing, and uh, well, we'll see. It's an exciting year for him ahead. He's a good figurehead for the sport. He's something different, um, quite aspirational. I think the way he's so sort of you know spent his time and indeed his money that he's earned honestly after uh, winning that uh, half a million pounds. And it won't be that long before before people start talking about the, the crucible curse. And I've already heard people say he'll never win it again. Well, but they're the people who said he wouldn't win it to start with. You know, I mean, well, let's see. You just don't know where things are going to lead you. But I look forward to watching him. I'm glad we're going to see plenty of him this season because regardless of being world champion or not, he's always been good to watch. A couple of years ago, he went down to about 40 in the world, but sort of quietly started to turn it around. He won a lot of sort of qualifying matches. Then he had that big burst. He got to the UK final won the Scottish Open. Of course, those points are going to be coming off this season, so that's something to watch out for. Uh, last season, he won the Championship League and, of course, the World Championship as well. We wish him well. We wish him good luck. He's a nice lad, Luca, and, uh, as I say, represents something different for the sport. Before we wrap up, a couple more emails. We have Jorrit in Holland. He says, I thoroughly enjoy your podcast when I'm working, my night shifts working with handicapped people. Keep up the good work. Do you have any idea when a verdict is being made considering Mark King and his suspension? Uh, I don't, is the answer. We're waiting, Jorrit, for uh, word to come down. Um, of course, Mark King is suspended, so he can't play at the moment. So I'm sure he wants it resolved as quickly as possible. But uh, no dates, no information as of yet. And finally, Alan in the Peak District said, Welcome back. You're, you mentioned last week your popula- popularity in the Armenian podcast charts and also the former Armenian player Ashok Potikan. I thought I'd try and find out more about him, but with limited success. His Wikipedia entry suggests he played on the tour for a couple of years in the mid-90s but failed to qualify for the later stages of any events. Uh, I found a picture of him. Sadly, he passed away in 2017. Do you or any of your other listeners know any more about him? It would be good to share his story. Uh, not that much. He played billiards as well. I know he played billiards and indeed he would have played, I'm guessing, Russian Pyramids, um, which is a brutal game. Every ball a cue ball. Pockets. Well, the balls are heavy. The pockets are tight. It's, uh, it's pretty brutal stuff. Um, but he definitely played some English billiards and he was a snooker player as well. Um, yes, I, I mentioned him last week because of the Armenian success, which has to be said, it wasn't really uh, sustained that much last week. But anyway, that, well, you know, that's uh, maybe the joke section will get them coming back. Uh, so that's it for this week. Um, the European Masters, looking forward to this week uh, in Nuremberg. Do let us know about those sausages if anyone's going. And uh, yeah. As I say, check the local TV schedules to, for exact transmission times because they do vary depending on where you are. But if you've got Discovery Plus, it's a big week of sport. You know, the World Athletics Championship is obviously, that's on Eurosport, that's going to take priority. There's other things on as well. So I can't promise every session will be live, but as I say, Discovery Plus, you can just plug it in and watch it and enjoy it. And uh, 
and that's what I'll be doing. Well, I'll be commentating, but uh, <laughs> I'll be looking to enjoy it as well and to see how everyone's feeling. You know, it's still early in the season, but uh, a big chance, of course, to get an early advantage on that Players Series race. Champion of Champions for those not already in it. Um, and, you know, might get someone in the top 16 if they win it. You know, the, 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 the circuit has been, you know, relatively quite stark, but we're now gearing up. It's going to be a busy year now, a busy season in the world of snooker, which is what we like. In the meantime, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. Um, and uh, you can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. But that's it for now. So see you next week, I hope. And uh, as we always say, here it comes. Goodbye, bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.